Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, Herstory Heroes, and welcome to our birthday episode. That's right. We're one years old. We're just figuring out object permanence, Woo-hoo. and we're probably doing some crawling and some semi-intelligent babbling. Heck yeah. What? And in case you didn't know, we're whining about Herstory, and I'm Kelly. I'm Emily, and thank you so much for joining us. We're oh my so God. excited. Can you believe we've been doing this for a year? Uh, no. It's funny because... Uh, our first two episodes we recorded in one day, and it seems like did we just, really? Yeah, it seems like just yesterday. I was oh. like, oh, I just did my research on Olamp de Gouge and the Edinburgh Seven, right? Like, oh, there's no way it's been a year. Yeah, but, but it, it has, has. <laughs> and, which is insane. And our birthday is actually International Women's Day. <gasps> That's right. March so 8th. by the time this recording comes out, our birthday will have actually been yesterday because it was a Sunday. So happy belated birthday. Happy belated birthday to us. Yay. Oh, my God. I'm so we have a very special episode for you with some very special wine to enjoy our one year. We do. And a very special something else. Before we get started, super quick, uh, Emily, kind of Emily, a say Emily's their name. ruining my and very special something else. Oh shit! Segue. I'm sorry. Well, I was just I was just gonna say uh, say their name, Catherine Johnson, who we covered all oh, yeah. the way back in episode four, passed away. By the time this episode comes out, that's gonna be like Emily that happened like forever but ago. We, we do want to like mention it and yeah. just say she was absolutely amazing. Go listen to episode seven if you haven't. Four. Four. I think it's episode four. I thought you said seven. She's a computer in a skirt. Yes. Go listen. She did so much for NASA and STEM, and she was absolutely amazing. And while it's always sad to lose someone that incredible from the world, it's... Was she 107? She was 101 fucking years old. I don't know why seven is stuck in my head. Like, she is... She lived a long happy life she got yeah. like a presidential medal of honor from barack obama who was the first black president like there was a lot of shit yeah she was at the oscars for the movie hidden figures in which she was featured yeah. like she had an incredible life and we we mourn her passing but more than that we celebrate her, her life. life okay now can we segue yes. into the something else for one year <gasps> shut the fuck up are you shitting me oh my god God! I wanted to get your reaction. Oh my fucking God, Kelly! The podcast. (laughs) Holy shit, this is gore. Is that etched in? Yeah. What the fuck? I made... Did you do that with the cricket? I did. How? How do you... It's... But it's round. (laughs) How do you get it under there? I made uh, wine glasses. Oh my... I have one too. They're not perfect. Mine's worse than yours, but... This I wanted look, to do it cool, as though. a gift for you for our one year. Oh, my God. And I mean, I'll make more, too. But We're going to take pictures of these and post them. I am so fucking blown away. So that's why if you heard when you were like coming upstairs, if you heard Justin go, Kelly, Emily's coming. I was wondering. I was like, well, fuck you, Because I had them then. Like, in my hand, and I was like, shit. Like, oh, my God. Because I wanted you to see them on air. So. Oh, my God. Kelly, I love you. I love you, too. You know what's funny is that our first like unofficial wine glass was also made from a cricket. 
because my friend had one yeah. and so she printed out like the gold letters and put yep. them on a wine glass but this is this looks like it's I mean it's etched it in is the glass etched, which I like because then you can still put them in the dishwasher holy shit and it's like it's our new font isn't it yeah is that what it it's, is it's the same font as our if you didn't notice our new logo which also launched today on our one year check that shit out and thank you so much to jess from the everything is awful podcast for designing it for us amazing you guys it's so incredible holy shit we have a pug break oh my god they're celebrating our one year too we literally just had a bunch of pugs bust into the room and they're freaking out i don't know how that door was not fully closed or if they're just that powerful probably not fully close they're female pugs so they're extra strong and powerful they just know we're talking about her story and are like women empowerment yes we're having an empowered day god damn it so yes we have wine glasses we have a new logo and it's our one year you guys and thank you so much for supporting us through all of this oh my god i'm freaking the fuck out i love this so much i like how it looks like a little weathered like it's got like the little bits of like breaks i'm not yeah, trying that to call was that unintentional out. well it but looks good it does look nice it because it's it looks historical 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 oh my yeah, god see mine you can tell like leaked leaked a little in places that looks genuinely so, i mean like the it kind of makes it look ink. like yeah it was like yeah. written by a pen oh my god we're gonna post pictures you guys i am and and these will be the ones available um and there's At no that Patreon Ian whining. Level. I know. There's no Ian whining. Don't worry. I know how to spell our name by now. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. So we are going to we, we're going to be offering these at what Patreon level? Oh gosh, ten dollars. I think. Let me Google it. Let me Google our own <laughs> Patreon. Gotta get that traffic. This is seriously super fucking gorgeous. You know, if you type whining into Patreon, we're the second thing that comes up. It also knows your search history. I I don't know if I've ever searched us before. Really? I do it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever I'm feeling sad, I just Google whining about her street and see all the places we are. (laughs) Yep. So it's $10. After three months, you can get a wine. If you donate to us $10 for three months, you can get a wine glass. Guys, that's such a fucking steal. And you get to support lady podcasters. Right. Independent and, and lady podcasters. Making wine glasses. Yeah. Oh my God. I love you, Kelly. I love you too. We're so in love. We are. Oh my God. And now we have wine glasses to solidify that. Yes. I mean, our friendship was like in the beta stage and now we're like full tier friends. Full tier 1.0. Full, full release. <laughs> Well, we have a very special wine to be drinking in these okay. wine glasses, don't we? We do. The guy at the liquor store helped me pick this out. The he guy was, who made me was, very self-conscious yes, about, about my Greek, uh, my Greek church, church wine. wine. <laughs> um, but he was very excited about this because so this bottle, it's a white. It's a Sauvignon Blanc, which is funny because we no, we just drink Pinot Noir. We drank Sav, Ca- Sav Cab a while ago. Yeah. Um, but this is Massacan. Which is a brand made, now I can't remember who it was, but the it's the head winemaker from a different wine company that normally makes three to $400 bottles of wine. Plus. And they usually, they only make reds. So this is this head winemaker's pet project to make whites. Wow. So he, he just does it for fun. So I was like, that's special. 
This is like what he does in his garage after work. And that's what we do in our studio after work. work. (laughs) So, yeah, he said the one, the guy at the liquor store is telling me that he goes to like Italy like four times a year to check on the grapes. And then he makes like two or three batches. And he had this one and then two um, blends. But I felt like getting the non blend was the better option. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt more genuine yeah i don't know like we we get to judge it as a sauvignon block not like oh it's red it's right. just red blend something so this is what it says our sauvignon blanc is inspired by the sauvignon wines of northern italy that's the other thing he gets his grapes only from italy only okay. from northern italy it is difficult to recreate these specific wines anywhere else in the world and this wine is our homage to these great whites the grapes from this wine are farmed at two distinct vineyards in Napa Valley, where the temperatures are both the warmest during the day and the coolest during the night. That diversity helps us produce a wine of intensity and freshness, just like our fellow winemakers do in Northeast Italy. This is intense. There's a bunch of writing on the front, but I can't make it out. because it's, it's like itty bitty cursive. Yeah. But yeah, so like this is somebody's pet project, like clearly of somebody who loves making wine. This is their passion project, like our podcast. Exactly. And so when I when I was told that, I was originally just going to buy like a $50 bottle of wine and be like, oh, no, no, no. But like when I heard that, I was like, no, this is, this is, I mean, it's above our normal like 20 and under, you know. When do we ever get to even 20 though? Right. Very rarely. Very rarely. Like Every 15 once in a while I is a, a bit much. But like when I heard that this was this guy's like pet project and like the thing he loved, I was like, no, this is, this is our one year wine. Aw, I'm super excited. And then I came home and made wine glasses. I'm so excited. This is so fucking wild, Kelly. Can you believe we've been doing this for a year? No. Can you believe I made wine glasses? I I can because I believe in you. (laughs) I can't. All right. Well, cheers Cheers to to our one year year and 50 episodes. Heck yeah. Clink. These clink well. These are like... So they're stemless, uh, like white wine glasses, but they like they have a slightly different shape than my other stemless. They're glasses. bottom heavy, which I, I appreciate. Yeah, I really like. <laughs> like same. Oh, that is good. That is really okay. I was nervous because this wine's aroma is super, super potent, super potent, and it's very acidic, and it kind of reminds me of like this is going to sound very rude, but you know, like kind of vomit or like you know heartburn yeah, or something that, acid. that like strong acid yeah. yeah and so that's kind of or the like scent. ammonia or something like. yeah so that's the scent so i was very nervous but it's actually it's very mellow super smooth it it's tastes so good. really good hold on you can definitely tell like not that any of the wines we've drank have been like oh god that's a cheap wine but you can definitely tell like more care or something was yeah. put into this wine it like, feels this like is... a very solid wine i can taste the love it's very I, leveled. Uh, I can taste the hot days and cool nights. I think he uh, uh, whispered his dreams into this wine. He did. He whispered he knew his it dreams was coming into every to us and was like, do what you love, ladies, because I love this wine. Do who you love and the money will come. A la Margaret Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting on that last part. I need the money. Yeah, right. But OK, we're also doing something else special for our one year we decided for our one year we're going to cover women specific to the history of us well not us because that would be our moms we did that i did that for mother's we've Day. been there we've done that um but we decided to cover minnesota women minnesota women that shaped this the great state flannel, that we live in eating cheese curds on tap 
No. But there is. If you want to go watch like a funny music video, they they redid California Girls to Minnesota Girls, and it's actually pretty good. It's super fucking accurate, too. They just missed the part where we're stuffing newspaper into our snowsuits to hike to Target. Yeah. We still got to post. I got to post that. Oh, yeah. I'll post it this week. I was kind of hoping that you'd uh, read it on air for our one year anniversary, but the wine glasses are okay, too. I mean, no, I'll pull it up and I'll read it. (laughs) I'll read it at the end. So stick around. Okay. Okay. If you want to know how us Minnesotans live, you gotta, you gotta know how we get to Target. Target. And then we, and then, you know, like the rest of the country, we leave without the thing we actually went to Target for, but we get dresses. We get dresses. Dresses and cake. (laughs) I mean, I have it up. Do you want me to read it now? Yes. Yes. Read it now. Hold on. I actually gotta like. I gotta, I gotta prepare. Okay, here we go. Are you ready? Oh, I'm, I'm so ready. Here, hold on. Let me, let me get comfy. Okay. Oh, jeez. Oh, that's scary. Something like popped up and there's like an <laughs> eye just repeatedly opening. It was creepy. Okay. We wake at dawn because we can no longer sleep through the cold in our houses. The snow falling in clumps the size of baseballs. Wind gusts shake the windows and icicles hang from the ceiling. We put on two pair of boots, the regular boot and the the government Minnesota boot, which everyone receives before the first snowfall of the year. (laughs) The Minnesota boot has six inch spikes to walk through the sheets of ice that cover the land. You mean my driveway right now? (laughs) Only the eyes are left exposed to ensure that the cold cold of winter does not permeate our snowsuits, which we make of old tarps and pillowcases stuffed with newspapers. They are all blaze orange so we can find the bodies of the frozen dead that litter our sidewalks. We travel in packs for safety, but if one falls, he or she is left behind to form a new pack or it's eaten. We walk together in hordes, blinded and freezing, climbing small mountains of snow and ice until we see it in the distance. Target. The red sign is our winter sun and it shines like a beacon across the horizon. We stumble toward it, rolling the last 20 feet across the parking lot because our legs have gone numb. When we make it through the doors, emergency crews are there to wrap us in heat blankets and give us Starbucks. That should be caribou. <laughs> that should be caribou. I'm changing it. What give the us fuck? caribou. Do you even some, live in Minnesota? Some never make it this far. It is a perilous journey, but one we must make. Together, from November to April, we are strong, we are cold, we are Minnesotans. Don't you know? Don't you know? <laughs> you betcha. I will say Starbucks is in Target. It but is, caribou but it is should be Minnesota. caribou because that's like a the Minnesota coffee shop. Yeah, that yeah. is so fantastic. I just like that together from November to April. We are strong. We are cold. We are Minnesotan. Yep. So there you go. That's how we get to Target in the winter. It's fun. That's amazing. It's fun. Okay, I was wrong. I said it was eight pages. My story's 11 pages. I'll talk fast. Oh, my God. Yeah, Kelly uh, went all out. And I'm really excited because I don't I think just got, like, super into this woman. Well, I don't think we've covered any women from Minnesota or who even, so. like, really passed through. Like, I think I don't... once we mentioned, like, someone, like, went to Minnesota and we were like, I think, like, I think uh, Bonnie and Clyde came here once and we were oh. like, Minnesota! Yeah. <laughs> we're way too excited about our frozen hellhole yeah. of a state. <laughs> I love it. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. All we need to do is legalize cannabis and we are good. We're good. We're so good. Okay. Are you ready? I'm so ready. So my first, the first part of my thing is a quote from a book called Martha G. Ripley, Pioneer Doctor and Social Reformer by Winton W. Or U. Not w. U. Solberg. And I kept this whole as a quote because I just love it. So here we go. 
In the rotunda of the Minnesota Capitol is a plaque dedicated to the memory of Dr. Martha G. Ripley, pioneer woman physician and founder of Maternity Hospital. Beneath the determined visage frozen in bronze, a conventional list of superlatives proclaims her to be have been fearless, courageous, a champion of righteousness, a noble influence, and an endure, enduring inspiration. Like most such eulogies, however, the terms fall sh- fail, failed to capture the dauntless spirit and the burning dedication to justice, which made this woman's name a household word and often a far from popular one among an earlier generation of Minnesotans. They contain no suggestion of her 30-year struggle to make the sprawling mill town of Minneapolis a more civilized community, nor do they echo the impassioned speeches, stormy legislative bearings, and stinging letters to newspapers which marked her effort. Her identification as founder of Maternity Hospital conveys little impression of the stern compassion with which she insisted against an overwhelming weight of public opinion that unwed mothers were deserving of medical care. End quote. I am captivated. I know. I'm also a little mad because I I took a tour of the Capitol when I was in youth and government because yeah. I was super and into the building. It. I don't think anyone pointed this out because I would have totally remembered. I know. Like, I feel like I don't remember it either. And I was in the Capitol a few times because I, you know, grew up in the Twin Cities. Yeah. So I love I, I kind of want to go back now and try and find it. Yeah, please. Can we? Herstory field trip. We should do that, actually. Yes. Okay. Martha George Rogers was born in Lowell, Vermont, on November 30th, 1843. Her father, Francis Rogers, was a stock farmer and married Esther Ann George. Stock farmer meaning he raised, like, stock animals, like cows and whatnot. Oh, he didn't farm the stock market? No. He didn't tend to it every season and make sure it got through the winter unscathed? Make sure it got through the coronavirus unscathed? Okay, anyways. At the time that Martha, the first of five children of the couple, was born, conditions in northern Vermont left much to be desired. The family moved to northeastern Iowa, you know, the Midwest, (laughs) in June 1847 and became part of the earliest white settlement, which was on what was then still Indian land in present present Winnesheek County, about 50 miles west of the Mississippi River. Okay. They lived in a town called Little Turkey River, which was about three miles southeast of Fort Atkinson, um, which led to... Like her, her dad decided to settle there because that offered a pro, like a market for him to sell his cattle to, obviously, or not mm-hmm. cattle, his stock to. Um, and also the fort offered security and kind of like a connection, you know, back to civilization, basically. Right, because they're in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. Like the Midwest is already kind of the middle of nowhere, but, but, but this, this is, is you know, this middle is of nowhere. 1843 Midwest. This is where Muriel lives with courage, the cowardly dog. Exactly. <laughs> um, so for the next decade, the twin influence of having a New England family, because, you know, they're very Puritan, or mm-hmm. at least were, um, and a stern frontier discipline continued to shape Martha. Frances and e- Esther, her parents, had good minds and were both independent spirits who, p- confess- who possessed conviction and courage. In Francis, these attributes were evident in his many litigations with his neighbors, whereas Esther was a free will Baptist who read the Bible once a year and joined a resolute concern for practical justice with deep spirituality. Both parents eagerly supported reforms and followed the leading issues of the age. Acquaintance with sodden Winnebago Indians and soldiers only intensified the couple's dislike of liquor, which will come into play later. Ah, so they were into the prohibition. Yes. 
temperance, I believe is what temperance it was called back at then. at the time. Um, they also enlisted in the abolition cause and maintained an underground railroad station in a cave in the bluff behind their home. Martha began t- taking place in equal rights early in life by carrying food to the slaves. Dude! The fugitive slaves, I should say. Who was that other... Who was... Oh, I think it was... Uh, Mary Walker, the pants wearing doctor that you covered. Yeah, I think she so. also had woke as fuck parents. Yeah. Yep. Like, this is amazing. I love when it's I so there's this idea that back in the day everyone was ignorant and racist. No. And a lot of them were. Don't get me wrong. That but was that, the yeah. style. But don't tell me that, oh well, it's just the way people were. Right? No. The, the Underground Railroad wouldn't have been a thing if everyone was ignorant and racist. Yeah, there were a lot of people fighting for the right thing. And exactly. Like we can we can look at history through the appropriate lens, but we also need to understand that like it didn't have to be that way. And there were a lot of people for a very long time saying Hey, maybe slavery is wrong, you guys. Like, even the founding fathers fought over the issue of slavery. Like, all the way back to the founding of our country, people are like, guys, should we really own people? I mean, it kind of sucks. Like, I feel like we're being dicks. We're being dicks. We are. Yeah. So formal schooling was not really to be had during Martha's early years. She did receive um, rudimentary instructions from her parents. Obviously, like living on the frontier, you probably learn a lot of hands-on things. Um, She did get to attend high school, although she did not graduate. But this meager schooling that she got was supplemented by the fact that her home was known for its generous hospitality to friends and strangers. And in fact, um, her father built in 1859... um, he was doing really well farming and actually erected a large stone house, which was the first of a kind in the settlement, which just made their house even more of like a place for travelers to stay overnight. So she learned a lot from people passing through their home. Right. Martha, with her long black hair and finely modeled face, sparkling gray eyes and vivacious personality at 17 was called the Belle of Little Turkey River. She sounds super cute. I know. Like she sounds like the protagonist in a young adult novel. Right? Sparkling gray eyes and long eb- ebony hair. And although she must have had an ample opportunity for immediate marriage, because, you know, this is back when they got married at 17. Because she had an ample um, personality. Yeah. <laughs> she chose instead to teach, which was practically the only career open to women on the frontier. It really, it was practically the only career open to women anywhere at this time. Yeah. And despite her limited academic academic or official academic preparation, Winnishot County did award her a first class teacher's license and she spent seven terms in the schoolhouse. Nice. Um, Those little one room schoolhouses where you right. have the kindergartners with the eighth graders. And Probably. Um Toward the end of her service as a teacher, um, the diphtheria epidemic started visiting the communities in the area. The young teacher was pressed into service attending to the sick, and she was successful. She cared for the diphtheria victims and gained experience in practical home nursing. Okay. Um, In June of 1861, Dorothea L. Dix became superintendent of the United States Army Nursing. Yeah, that was a thing. Wow. Um, And everywhere, women volunteered to become nurses and, you know organized supplies and stuff like that martha volunteered um however miss dix wanted plain women over 30 not not pretty teenagers to tend to the soldiers so she was regulated to recruiting others who were who were eligible to be nurses and seeking money and gifts for the united states sanitary commission so she was too pretty pretty too pretty and too young is that a thing apparently it was like anymore Eh, probably not it's crazy yeah i don't know 
The close of the war, however, brought many men west. Among them was William Warren Ripley, who took up ranching in the neighborhood of Fort Atkinson and soon began to court Martha. Believe it or not. Tall and nearing 30, he had attended school in Groton, Massachusetts, and came from a family of comfortable means. You know, those comfortable means. Yeah. His uncle owned a paper mill in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and by the time that they married... In June 1867, he had already agreed to return to New England as manager of one of the paper mills. So, you know, boys got shit going on. Good for him. Obviously, his bride accompanied him. And as she left, the land often developed, leave, sorry, leaving a land behind that often developed in its women a great capacity for independence, but which seemed to refuse to grant it to them. Because so, the frontier was somewhere where women could be really independent, but they didn't have a lot of options. Because it, because it's it's tough living there, and so everyone has to pitch in, and the gender roles are a little more blurred because until it's like, it comes to jobs, I just need someone to fucking plow this field. I don't really give right. a shit who Plus it is. I don't is. think women can own land in most frontier oh, settlements. Yeah. Um, so one one author noted the wilderness may have been the frontier for the American man, but the city was the frontier for the American woman. Ooh. I know I like that. That's sexy. Um, now 24, Martha arrived in Massachusetts as the nation was beginning to shed its rural and agricultural past for an urban and industrial future. Lawrence, the city they moved to, was then the, the sixth largest city in the state and was a young and raw mill town, which was rapidly growing into a city center. 60% of the 10,000 operatives in its textile and other mills were women. Wow. I know. Beyond Lawrence was Boston, where some of the best minds in New England were seeking ways to redirect the forces of reform, which for years had been focused almost exclusively on emancipation. With that, with that goal achieved, reformers found it necessary to adjust their sights to new targets. One obvious pre-war thing was equal rights that the, the feminist movements had started. Yep. So now was the time for the struggle for women's suffrage. I'm not going to say that that's not a good thing because it obviously is. But they're like, no, slaves are emancipated. They're fine. Right. They're fine. It's like, I'm sorry. Reconstruction could have been great. And it wasn't. No. Yeah. It, it was great it, for like a hot second. It was and great then in racism. idea. And then. Well, it's terrible. just because they came up with all these laws to continue to suppress black yeah, people. It was terrible. In ways that weren't slavery. Right. Um, yet even in women's rights, yet even in the women's rights movement itself, there was conflict. Oh, isn't there always? Right. There was personality clashes and rival strategies. And by 1870, that had led to the formation of two separate groups. In Boston, the American Women's Suffrage Association pursued a moderate course, which stressed, stressed a male-supported campaign that gave priority to winning the ballot in separate states. So, like, they were, like, start local move up kind of a kind thing. of the way same-sex marriage was being legalized state to exactly. state before it became federally legal exactly okay its guiding spirit was lucy stone and its local affiliate the massachusetts women's suffrage association you're gonna have to cut all this out association was led for many years by james freeman clark a renowned unitarian clergyman lucy stone and her husband henry b B. Blackwell were making the Commonwealth their laboratory for political action on behalf of women's suffrage. Convinced that the reform must come at the state level first, they aimed at an amendment to the state constitution and sought to promote organization at the local level. As I said, the rival section was the National Women's Suffrage Association, which is probably the one pe more people know of because this was the one directed out of New York City by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. <gasps> oh, my God. They're the ones that did the uh, the Seneca Falls right. Women's Conference. And they had a comparatively radical program and an aloofness to male participation. 
They favored an aggressive campaign strategy to secure the federal amendment granting women the right to vote. I think it's so important to hear about these stories and how it wasn't just a bunch of women saying we want the right to vote. There were so many subsections and, you know, different strategies and different ideologies about women's rights and voting. And we still see that in feminist movements, any kind of civil rights movement today. There's always groups and and factions. I think it's important, like, okay. So one group is like, we're going national. The other is like, let's start let's local, start local and, and it'll like, build up and make sure the men are our allies. Like neither of those are wrong, but like don't cut each other down because you're right. only undermining your own efforts. Exactly. You know, it's, it's and hard it, and it's 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 tough. So like um, there are some quote unquote feminists who aren't actually feminists who are trans exclusionary. That's not a that's not a concession you're not a feminist then, and that's not okay. Right. But there are some ideologies where it's like, hey, I may not agree with the way you're doing it, but I agree with what you're doing. You do your thing, but I'm going to do this too. Right, and like I'm not going to stop up. you from doing your thing. I'm just going to do it, like I'm going to do mine my own way. But yeah, we'll yeah. like still work toward a common goal kind right. of thing. But yeah, so that was what was going on in the area kind of a thing. The early part of Martha's residence in Massachusetts was spent close to home and represented a unique interlude in her life of like this was a brief interlude where she actually had some leisure and time to herself. Because otherwise she was just always hustling. Yeah, hustling. you'll see. The first of her three daughters were born. Um, Abigail. She had, they later had two other daughters, Clara and Edna May. Um, but they didn't start having kids until five years into their marriage, which is oh, super rare. Wow. But, you know, she was like, I don't know. They partied. Who knows? Yeah. They're, they're like, no, 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 no. Honey, you finish in the sock. <laughs> right. At about this time, um, when their daughter was born, the family moved from Lawrence to Middleton, where William Ripley bought a mill of his own and engaged in paper right like. So he broke off from his uncle, who was kind of a sexist asshole. Oh, cool. I, kinda, I cut that part out because it was just like, it was a lot. It I wasn't was super like, important. It didn't really matter. But yeah, he was a sexist asshole. So her husband went and bought his own mill and they moved. Good. He's. He's pretty cool. Yeah. He seems like a pretty cool dude. Yeah. I like he, him. He's not highly featured in here, but he seems like well, he was... Well, it's not his story, but... He seems like he was real cool. 1875 found Martha ready to take her place in the ranks of the reform. Middleton did not have, at the time, an active group, suffrage group. And in order to create one, she sought to educate the people. In the course of this education, she sought to... Shot... La, la, la. Shot. She just shot everyone. <laughs> yep, that's how she did it. She's the terrible. only one left and was her own suffrage association. Bitches, we need a suffrage movement. I have a gun. Let's do it. <laughs> right? Holy shit, you're a super aggressive. You're right, no. None of the other, all the other groups become united because they're like, that doesn't represent us. <laughs> too much. This is too, all entirely so, too much. In the course of this, she sought to bring such prominent women as Mary F. Eastman, who was a noted speaker, and Mary A. Livermore, who was the president of the State Temperance Union. Got to pack the temperance. So I'm, I'm going to use temperance because that's what was in my notes. Um, but that's the movement they don't to drink. abolish alcohol. Yeah. yeah. So she was the State Temperance Union and editor of the Women's Journal. So she wanted both of them to lecture in the area. And she herself, who had a strong, clear speaking voice, also took the platform to talk about it. Her efforts were very successful. And the the success of her efforts can actually be traced in the pages of that women's journal, um, which shows Middleton developing into a stronghold for the feminist movement. 
for the suffrage movement, rather, at this time. Education proceeded in both directions, however. In the course of organizational work at the grassroots level, Martha observed that the abstract right called suffrage meant far less to the ordinary woman than did a specific reality, such as a vote on the temperance committee or a voice in the school board elections. So it was like, hey, you can vote. Okay. No, you can vote about this. You can you can right. make your voice heard about these issues exactly. that affect you. That's interesting. I never really thought about it exactly. that way. And Martha, you know, took this lesson and became a permanent convert to the moderate ap- approach advocated by Lucy Stone in that group. So because that was she like saw the it local working. grassroots. Yep. The, okay. It was start local, work our way up kind of a thing. This placed her in the mainstream of the trend of the time, which stressed women's suffrage not for its own sake, but as a means of achieving other reforms. Success at the local level won Martha a place in the inner councils of the state and regional associates. We hope, wrote Henry Blackwell, who was Lucy Stone's husband, in the spring of 1876, that you will make a point to speak in regard to the work you have done and the way you do it. We need a new voice and new workers, and you can aid much by telling your own experiences, end quote. So she's like this fresh new face on, I I mean, honestly, the suffrage movement had been going on for a very long time. Exactly. (laughs) In her debut at the annual convention of the New England Women's Suffrage Association, she took issue with a statement that women could not convert members of their sex as well as men could. And citing her Middleton labor, she pointed to the moral keep women's rights movement practical. So wait, is is she is are people saying that only men can get women? Yeah, no. So, someone at this convention was saying that yeah, men men convert women to the suffrage cause better than women can, and she was like, "Uh, no, look what I did in this town." Okay, first of all, I can't imagine there were a ton of men who were like, "Hey, women." You deserve to vote. It it was a women-led movement because women were the ones affected by it. Oh, no. I can guarantee you it was men saying that men convert women better than or worse than men do. Like, I can't see a woman saying that. What the fuck? But yeah, and then, of course, she's reiterating, like, keep it practical. Keep it where, you know, like, hey, if we get the right to vote, you know, we can vote in the school elections and you know all this other stuff here's how it's going to actually affect your life this right. isn't some broad abstract concept this is this is something that can affect power. your daily life exactly yeah at the same meeting she was given a place on the executive committee of the organization and a few months later lucy stone informed her of her elect her election to the state central committee of the Mach- massachusetts women's suffrage association she was re-elected annually to both posts until she moved to minnesota Woo! It's coming. Go, coming up to the great white north. She must have been a spirited figure at suffrage gatherings because at the January meeting of the convention, she criticized a speaker who blamed women for men's shortcomings and declared that such meetings spent too much time discussing questions already settled. Insult. What? Right. <laughs> she- I, I'm sorry. I didn't know women were responsible for all of your fucking problems. Right. She noted the rapid changes occurring in the conditions of women and that they now could enter any profession and exceed if they had the ability. She said if Harvard would not accept women, they would acquire the necessary knowledge in other places of learning. After this, or perhaps as a result of this, Lucy Stone invited her to address the spring meeting of the New England Association, telling her, quote, Say your own genuine say, end quote. Can you just keep putting assholes in their place because we're loving it? Right. You know, here's the thing. Like, this sounds like such a 
it almost sounds comically sexist because it's from so long ago, but we still hear shit like that. How women are responsible for the failings of men. Right. And how, oh, well, only men can really communicate with women. Like, we still hear this stuff. And while it's not as well received as it was at that time, there's still way too many people who are like, yeah. It's not my fault. It's women's fault. Right. And then they turn into murderers, a la every serial killer, except some of them who kill also killed men. Right. And Um, Eileen (laughs) Warnos. Right. She became a favorite and frequent visitor of the home of the Blackwells, and her committee associates included professional women such as Mercy B. Jackson and Mara E. Zakzuska. Oh who were both God. who were both doctors. These relationships gave her a fresh perspective on women's role in the American society and helped prepare her for her own grand entrance into a, into a new career. The first step in this new career was taken in October 1880 when she enrolled in the Boston University School of Medicine. Her immediate reason for seeking medical training was to care more competently for her own families and the families of the mill hands who, you know, who obviously worked for her husband and would often come to her in times of sickness and distress i love that that was a thing like like i i she's go she's obviously going to school pursuing an education in medicine but she's already kind of a medical professional she she had well because remember she cured for people with the diphtheria epidemic and she had actually engaged willingly in the charitable work of caring for people's family until a baby that she was working with that had membranous croup uh died like choked to death because of this illness. Oh Jesus, that's um, horrifying. She was she was shocked and told everyone that she would either study medicine or abandon nursing. Yikes! She, I, she went and studied medicine. It's like either I need to be better at this or I need to stop. Right. Her entrance application gives a, a revealing glimpse of both the matron and the medical education of the day. She lacked a high school diploma, but she was not deficient in her preparation by contemporary standards. An original composition on on the women of 1880 opens a window on her essential interests and reveals the aspirations of women reformers. Could the people, this is a quote, could the people who inhabited the city even a hundred years ago be permitted to look in upon us today? What astonishment would be theirs? And how many questions would be asked and answered before they could they could comprehend that women have at last begun to find out why God created them with brains equal in the capacity to those of their brothers? Imagine their feelings when told that the great and honored offices of doctor, lawyer, and minister are often filled and well-filled by women. She granted that these were exceptional women, just as the really great men were exceptional men. But with the restricted educational and political liberty women of the present enjoy, save in in a few noble instances like Boston University, the first medical college for women, our advantages have been few for a higher education. She saw a brighter, she saw a bright, brighter future ahead concluding with the assertion that what we have been able to get has been a blessing to the world to our homes and to each individual let excelsior be our motto that was her entrance exam so she came up with that not stan lee right (laughs) i think that's really interesting because uh she's acknowledging that like the accomplishments of men are just as great as that of women but acknowledging that women have had to fight a lot harder to get where men are which almost which adds a level of exceptionalism to it it's like when you have to break down three walls to get to the same place that someone was able to by just walking through, through an a open door. door. It's different, yeah. Yeah, there's a, an extra level of difficulty and an extra level of amazingness. Right. 
When Martha entered Boston University, laboratory instruction was replacing lectures and the 24-month 24, 24 curriculum, which was spread over a three-year period, meant that she received three times as much formal instruction as had Elizabeth Blackwell, who was the country's first woman to, woman to earn a medical degree. Wow. So they're just saying even in that short time how much it women's education had advanced. Yeah. One third of Martha's class consisted of women, and they often dominated the student prize competitions. Damn. Nevertheless, equal rights suffered when the faculty allowed ma- male students to monopolize the best appointments. Her friends told a story, probably with embellishment, that Martha faced this challenge by brandishing a backbone that she was dissecting and asserted that this is what the faculty needed. The situation was soon corrected. I like to think there was no embellishment. No, I like to think she just like whipped out a spine and was like, come on, teachers. Also, this reminds me so much of the Edinburgh 7 from episode two, how like even though they were able to get into school, there they were was just, another doctor I talked about too that like who held put a up penis, penis in yeah. someone's bed. Yeah. yeah. Who was that? Where she like cut off a cadaver's penis and was like she either whipped it around or like put it in someone's bag he's like this dude doesn't have balls man fuck you yeah (laughs) i know it's oh my god i remember recording that because i was like i'm sorry i know you're trying to move on but she did what to a penis exactly i know i remember that (laughs) So this gentle picture of this well-to-do matron giving medical care to her own family and to others upon a voluntary basis was dissipated when William Ripley was injured in a mill accident and forced to retire from business. No. Yeah. William. He's still alive, though. Oh, good. This threw his wife into the responsibility of earning the income, though. Oh. She graduated with honors in the spring of 1883, and later in that, that August, she departed alone on a scouting trip to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her husband had relatives there, and... Uh, and they had no doubt Minnesota's burgeoning industrial city promised more opportunity than the settled communities of New England, which is probably true. Yeah. Reaching Minneapolis, she first called upon Dr. Adele S. Hutchinson, an earlier graduate of Boston University Medical School, who was participating in the city. Dr. Hutchinson gave her a cool reception and discouraging reports. I like to think that that call was like, hello, it's Isn't me. me? I was wondering if I could work in medicine in Minneapolis. And he's I like, know it's I actually don't know there, if it's a he or a she, but they were like, but um, no. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty sure they probably were like, uh, you know, because they don't want competition. Yeah. So, never- I mean, act, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, no, but uh, Dr. Mayo Sr., famous for the Mayo Clinic, right. was going to operate in Minneapolis with his clinic, but there were already way too many fucking doctors. Right. He's like, I'm just going to chill in Rochester where no one cares right. if you and live or die. And it worked really well. Yeah. Um, so even though he was discouraging, she still visited the new homeopathic hospital on 9th Street. Her teaching was mainly in homeopathic medicine. Okay. Um, but she knew like practical shit too. And began looking for housing in an office space. The search was disappointing, and most of what she saw was either small and cheap or too remote. And despite the building boom, houses were taken, quote, about as soon as the cellar was dry. Which is a great way to say that. I like that. Land was fabulously expensive, with lots reputedly doubling in price in a few weeks. Margins and corner lots was about all you hear of, she wrote in in perplexity, wishing that her husband were there to make the decision. Such, Such vexations reminded her that the trip was in earnest and not like a visit. It was a lonely and difficult period, and her spirit faltered briefly before the new responsibility she faced. 
Her letters to her family reveal the high price to be paid to a woman of 1880. She wrote, I am very tired, anxious, etc., mentally and physically. She wrote that she believed that she had been for years, but was only just discovering it. Can I just say, as someone who has gone through the home search process, 100% true. Shit does not change. It is a horrible experience. I had like a straight up panic attack before an inspection once. It's awful. But then especially at that time, you're alone. You're far away. You're, you're, I mean, regardless of the time. You're a woman of 1880. Yeah. But regardless of that, you're by yourself. Yeah. That's terrifying. But then, yeah, you've never really been in the position where you have to fight like And it's like you're living with your husband's relatives and it's just, it's a weird thing. Yeah. That's tough. She was without ambition and hated to speak to anyone or even walk the block and felt like she was drifting. Amen. I hate speaking to people too. (laughs) She once wrote that she imagined that she should live at the paper mill all of her life, although even that might be full full too large for me. This delayed reaction was the protest of strength pushed to its limits. Minneapolis, however, gradually exerted a tonic effect on her. The place grows on me, she admitted. Like the mosquito bites in the summer. And while her husband's relatives were very enthusiastic about it, she shared her opinion of one who liked it very much, but will not say that she likes it better than Boston. That's fair. Sounds, I yeah. mean, it's it's Cheers versus Mary Tyler Moore. Right. Shortly thereafter, they moved to Minneapolis. Even before she arrived, the women's suffrage cause reached out to claim her. In October of 1883, she was elected president of the Minnesota Women's Suffrage Association. This choice of a person who wasn't even in Minnesota and was unknown to the local women is accounted for by the fact that the Minnesota organization had shifted its allegiance from the Stanton Anthony faction, which it had previously been affiliated with, to the Lucy Stone faction, the the ground grassroots faction. Let's also just remember, she didn't have social media. She wasn't like touting herself as no. an as an activist or an but influencer or anything. Did. Someone else was writing letters to a bunch of people in Minnesota, like right. you guys need to get her on your exactly. ship. So not only did the women vote for the more moderate strategy, but they went a step further and accepted, perhaps in the absence of a different local leader, a new president quote who comes highly recommended from hb blackwell and lucy stone so like the leaders of the movement are like hey you should look into this chick she's good she's good people you guys she she knows how to make a mean tater hot dish let me tell you let me tell you she also really liked that lutefisk oh my god that lutefisk minnesota bones congeal into a gelatin it is it just sounds so gross (laughs) no as minnesotans lutefisk is disgusting stop right (laughs) minnesota was not massachusetts however and during her tenure she did not score as many gains as she had in massachusetts one of the things affecting an alliance between women suffrage, one of these things that she gained was an affecting an alliance between women's suffrage and the temperance forces of the state, because of course she did. She also succeeded in bringing the 17th annual convention of women's suffrage to Minneapolis in 1885. Not long afterward, though, she gave up the presidencies of Minnesota suffrage uh, to intensify her assault on other fronts of the women's rights struggle. The ballot was to her but only one aspect of a larger quest for equality and was above all an avenue toward correcting the discriminatory laws and social attitudes which facilitated the exploitation of women by men. So she's like, I got other shit to do. Yep. Medical practice, however, was still like her business. 
and she it needed her attention daily daily and the helplessness of women to protect their homes their children and themselves in a society which accorded them an inferior position like so her medical practice showed her all of that yeah she she's seeing women who are vulnerable because society has dictated that they will be vulnerable because they're beholden to the will of men exactly she brushed aside conventional cowardice which you know the the whole victorian sensibilities thing she so she she just ignored that and flailed the the attitude of the public which indulged a double standard she would crucify male seducers who insisted upon chastity for their own brides and she demanded equal the purity of men so she was like, if you're going to demand that your bride be chaste, you should be chaste. It's too. the player versus slut conundrum, exactly. which is not really a conundrum. Everyone should be sexually free to do whatever they want with consenting adult exactly. partners. Like as a physician, she announced her descent from the views of other doctors who insisted that men needed sexual intercourse for their health. Shut the fuck up. Just jerk off into a sock, you prudes. She also asserted that the underlying cause of female ill health and mortality would be found in the study of the life and habits of the women's fathers. So a woman, a woman's success is and health is directly no, she's saying by like, her dad. No, she's saying like if ill health and women's deaths, if you look at how her father treated her, like that's oh, a lot to blame. Oh, so it's like the cycle of abuse. Yes. Oh my God. She is like living in 2020 right, right now. When a young Minneapolis woman shot the man who had ruined her under the promise of marriage. A la Carrie Davies. Martha exclaimed that no poor working go- girl should be obliged to do for herself what the law should do for her. Yes. Existing statutory punishments for crimes against women, she declared a disgrace, noting that Minnesota, the persons of the persons of girls were not as well protected as their property. The age of consent in 1858 was 10 years old. Shut the fuck up. Are you serious? An example of the resulting injustice was a case in which a woman's organization learned with dismay that the existing law prevented it from adequately cr- prosecuting a man for violating his 11-year-old stepdaughter. Ew! Stop it, Woody Allen! Get out of our stories! Nevertheless, in 1889, the legislature not only rebuffed an attempt to to rage the age of consent, but passed a law empowering fathers to will away their unborn children. Martha declared this law to be worthy of the Dark Ages. She also pointed out that existing... Other existing statutes allowed Minnesota fathers to bind out, or basically enslave their children to other people without the mother's consent what the fuck oh oh yeah this is so messed up however martha and her group continued deluging the legislator with petitions to raise the age of consent to 18 years old in eight in 1891 they semi-relented and raised it to 14 can we can I just point out that this is something that a lot of states are still dealing with where the age of consent is absurdly low. I mean, I think ours that, is 16. And that rapists are allowed to like marry their victims yeah, especially if they get them pregnant. Like like guys, Ugh. this was happening with the 1800s. Yeah. We're still fighting about it's, this. And it's disgusting. Wake up. Like right? I'm so I'm sorry. I'm pissed no. off right now. Four years later, another vigorous campaign was launched to secure adequate law again. A meeting in the First Baptist Church of Minneapolis endorsed a bill which raised the age to 18. Good. Martha served on general committees to carry out the work and appoint press and finances. 
In earlier deliberations within the, the circle of crusaders, Martha had differed with those who feared that boys or innocent men might be made liable to blackmail and or jail at the instance of, of uh like of servant girls that would want to just smear them. At the Capitol, however, Martha insisted on distinguishing between types of offenders and stressed the need to incarcerate older or more wicked culprits for over a year and not merely put them in the county jail. Despite all of these efforts, the measure failed to pass. We are still talking about this shit. What the hell? Then, calling attention to the injustice done to women, Martha personally petitioned the state Senate for the right to vote, a gesture which lawmakers met with laughter and ridicule. Fuck them. So yeah, that was her life. Um, There were other numerous facets of the Eagles' right struggle, which she voiced her opinion and took vigorous action. Among them were the need for matrons on the Minneapolis police force, the right of female domestics to organize a union, and the right of women to seats on the Board of Education. You know, because that makes sense. Yeah. She would often use the city's newspaper to reflect her interest in the public schools, both as a mother and a defender of the largely female teaching staff. Her concern also extended to the other end of the social spectrum, where women were even more open to exploitation. As a men- member of the Women's Rescue League, which was, um, they worked toward the reform of, like, prostitutes, and, like, in helping and prostitutes. Work. Yeah. Sex work reform. Prostitutes back then. No, yeah. I but know, yes. but. But, yeah, they, they would help sex workers. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing back then. Right. By See, ver- woke people have been around oh, yeah. forever, and just no one will listen. <laughs> By virtue of her age and long residence, she became a link of continuity between the older generation of, you know, women's suffrage and women's rights and the younger generation of women's rights. You know, so she kind of brought the two groups together and kind of helped facilitate almost the changeover of leadership between the older generation and the newer generation. Right. Um, she would often entertain former associates and younger women, um, such as Carrie Chapman Cat, who became huge in the women's suffrage association later um but she would entertain them in her home and that's where she did like a lot of these like okay like get the younger women into the movement and you know so she was you know helping other people get woke medicine was however martha's reason for settling in minneapolis and it monopolized the rest of her time and energy she became a highly successful obstetrician and won a place of distinction in the medical history of the city. What's obst? What's obstetrics? Obs- OB. Baby. Babies. Oh! Obstetrics. Okay. Um, I always think I get confused with optician. Optician. The eye the guy. The eye doctor. The eye guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she was licensed on the last day of 1883. Um, and at that time, she was only, she had only been preceded by seven women doctors in Minneapolis, and there was only a total of 20 in the state. Damn. The prominence which accompanied her suffrage activities brought patients in its wake, and the city's large immigrant crop population, which included many women who took kindly to lady doctors, like a lot of immigrants were like, yeah, lady doctors are fine. Whereas a lot of white, you know, like men didn't want to be treated by lady doctors. Right. Um, contemporary sources agree that her practice was extensive and lucrative. It included at least one male allopath. Allopath is like common medicine. Homeopath is like kind of the out there medicine. Oh, I thought they just like grew a bunch of aloe plants and they're like, you got sunburn? You got sunburn? No. Aloe will fix your herpes. Let me tell (laughs) you. So her, her staff included at least one male, uh, male 
normal doctor physician, physician general yeah. general it, it they they also had many devoted patients that seemed to that just kind of overlooked her homeopathic connection like they were just like whatever you're still a doctor it's fine were they were even back then were they kind of like man homeopathy that's a little yeah. out there and while she like didn't necessarily actively practice homeopathy she, she did continue the practice of writing, lecturing, and teaching about it. So she wasn't shoving jade eggs up, up women's no. hoo-hahs. Okay. No, because she was an op- she was a normal obstetrician. You know what's really going to clear up this syphilis? Some rose quartz. And uh, if you just rub it between your labia for like 10 minutes a day, that's really, that's really going to give you some extra You're making power. my story like twice as long. <laughs> I'm sorry. Here, um, take some rose quartz. That'll help yeah. with your angst. <laughs> it, it, so... As a professional woman, this former beauty um, wore her skirts well above the ground as a sanitary measure, and for similar reasons, she cut her dark hair unfashionably short. You know, you don't want all that fucking hair in your, you know, like if you're in in somebody's hoo-ha, you don't want your hair in there. And you know what? When you shower, that stuff gets all up in your butt crack, and that adds at least 10 minutes of picking it out. It's not fun. No one has time for that. (laughs) With her firm profile and her height of five feet, six inches, which was well above average for that time for a woman, and her air of determination, she must have been a commanding figure. Like, I imagine she was much like myself. I'm... Hey, I'm into her. So that's an accurate uh, comparison. Despite her many professional and community responsibilities, she was, her daughter recalls, a good wife and mother, one who could be counted on for the family when needed. Um, In her moments of relaxation, she would enjoy cooking and poetry. She was a member of the congregational church, which the family would attend together. William Ripley was a partner who greatly aided her. Not only was he sympathetic to her professional and reforming careers, but he also assumed much of the family responsibility. Never returning to active business, he was able to spend considerable time with the children, and a daughter remembers that he often drove his doctor on her night calls in a heated buggy warmed with soapstones. Oh, he gets the king crown for our episode. Yeah, he, he sounds like a sweetie. Believe it or not, the guy isn't the villain in this right? story. This particular guy. Yeah, this particular guy. <laughs> Society in the narrow sense of the term did not attract their attention like yeah they had money but they didn't really care their household always remained very modest but was a center for generous hospitality in addition to suffrage and reform leaders there were other frequent guests and on occasion weddings were arranged in their parlor one girl was even informally adopted into their family circle their life their domestic life suggests warmth and unity Aww. I'm loving this. Right. Characteristically, she approached her community responsibilities as a medical prote- practitioner with deep earnest. As Minneapolis had reason to know, her conscience imposed, quote, the duty of not keeping silent when wrong exists, end quote. In addition, therefore, to her lifelong crusade for women's rights, she campaigned for a wide variety of other reforms related to public health. Although her idealisms and social viewpoint at times evoked strong opposition and even ridicule from people, newspaper reporters frequently teased her, but on the occasion, they could be her champions as well. Hooray for Martha, they chortled, um, when she emerged victorious from a dispute with a dogmatic and unpopular health officer. So they were like, yay. He's a dick. Go get him. As an individual and also the chairman of the Fourth Ward Committee of the Minneapolis Improvement League, she also conducted a war on filth and a battle for pure water. 
In letters to the newspaper, she condemned food adulteration and added her voice to that of the Minneapolis Tribune against crowding patients with different contagious diseases into one small, unventilated hospital room. God, this shit is so common sense now, but there was a time where we had to realize that was a bad idea. (laughs) A letter published in 1890 outlining the inadequacies of the city's sanitation system we need soap, guys. Right. <laughs> Drew from the former president of the University of Minnesota to compliment her w- for such so much good sense. As a corollary to her crusade for public health, she became an enthusiast ad- advocate. <laughs> advocate for cremation. Sanitary means of earth burial had not yet been devised, and as urban urbanization advanced it became impossible to remove crowded graveyards outside the limit of the city so this not this was not only endangering public health but imposed an economic hardship on landless urban masses for whom the cost of traditional burying became super expensive just astronomical yeah the modern cremation movement with its emphasis on sanitation was therefore one aspect on the rise in the city it was also part of the late 19th century reform syndrome um, it was viewed in United States, sorry, it was viewed in Europe as something that was liberal and free thought while in the United States it first gained support in the radical reform circles, such as the Bostonians with whom Martha Ripley had been associated with before. Her friends Mary Safford and Anna Shaw both favored it, and in 1893, Lucy Stone was the first person to be cremated in New England. Wow. Ma- Lucy is like... She just pops up everywhere in I kind of want to cover her, yeah, too. Yeah, we might She's have to. super involved. On one occasion, Martha read a paper about cremation before the Minneapolis Homeopathic Institute. Concerned with its social and huma- humanitarian rather than its religious aspects, she defended it on sanitary and economic grounds. She went so far as to even um, describe the process of incineration, drawing upon her own observation of, of the reduction of two friends to ashes. Aw, yep. that's kind of romantic. Yeah. In closing, she suggested three advantages of the custom. Cremation meant safety for the living was less costly than an earth burial, and she added with a grim but unconscious humor, quote, it allies the fear of being buried alive, and Oh, quote. my God. That's so fucking right. funny. Her commitment to the cause was so strong in total that she asked her family to return her body to Boston if she died before she could be incinerated in Minneapolis. So she's like, if the city doesn't pick it up and I die, send me home so I can be cremated. Honestly, that's why I want to be cremated. It's cheaper. <laughs> I'm so stingy. I don't know. Like, it's funny because, like, I'm more worried about being burned alive now. I it's not don't a think thing. it's as much it's of a, a problem no. nowadays. Um, so the unique achievement that sets Mar- Martha apart from, from a host of other dedicated reformers, because, I mean, there was a ton of them. Oh, yeah. Was the establishment of what was known as the maternity hospital. It was long a Minneapolis landmark, and the institution reflected the two dominant themes in its founder's life concern for the welfare of women and the physician's responsibility to give medical care wherever it was needed it reflected a compassion which reached out to touch the young lives on an intensely personal level regardless of social disapproval or financial financial burden so maybe don't shit on the most marginalized in our society and offer them health help when they need it yeah in 19th century minneapolis as basically everywhere at the time, unwed mothers approached childbirth with immense physical and psychological hazards. Hospital maternity facilities were limited since most most babies were still delivered at home and no city hospital admitted an unmarried woman for confinement. Such persons were, in the day, 
viewed as deserving of punishment, not assistance. I'm going to I'm going to taper back my what the fucks because I feel like yeah. it's going to be a lot. Um, since family homes also frequently turned erring daughters away, the alternatives were few and grim for these women. The only Minneapolis Institute open to such cases was the Bethany Home for the Friendless. The step. <laughs> I'm sorry. What it's why? called? It's Bethany Home for the Friendless. Oh, why was every hospital back then named the most depressing? No, this, thing this place kind of sounds like it was terrible. Oh my god. So this was established in 1875 by a Society for Reforming Women. The city gave it financial support and sent charity cases there. Young, quote, innocents were thrown in with hardened older women and punishment rather than redemption was the keynote to their, to their like, how they treated them. Cool, 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 cool. Although she did not condone immorality, Martha was keenly aware of the injustice inherent in this whole situation. The rapidly urbanizing community of Minneapolis was complex and fluid, um, and it was reflected in the fact that of the diversity of her first three patients taking taken under her wing. The first one was a teacher, the second was a daughter of a clergyman, and the third was a young Scandinavian girl who was homeless, friendless, and destitute. Whatever the circumstances of their pregnancies, all three of them needed care, and Martha met the situation by renting a small house on 15th Street and hiring a nurse. Those first three patients were quickly joined by others, and within a month, it became evident that this building was too small. Friends of the doctor and others who sympathized with this project rallied to her aid, and one of them provided temporary rent-free quarters in an 18-room house on the north side of town. The admission of 19 patients during the next te- next four months clearly demonstrated the need for a permanent hospital. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Martha organized her forces, and in July of 1887, a corporation was formed to, quote, provide a lying-in hospital for the confinement of married women who are without mean or suitable abode to care at the time of childbirth, and which might quote, admit girls who have previously been born of good character, but who under promise of marriage have been led astray. So unwed pregnant women. Yeah. Um, it was also to care for the destitute children born within its um, institution. So they're like, hey, we'll care for these kids. Yeah. The only non-amendable article of, of incorporation specified that the medical department was to be, quote, under the care and control of homeopathic women physicians, end quote. Although, women caring for women. Yeah. Any doctor of good standing was allowed to treat patients there. It just had to be run by a female doctor. Okay. On the board of directors were prominent women Martha had met through her various activities. And the name chosen for the hospital was simp- simply Maternity Hospital. And this it remained. No, for the friendless or for nope. the hopeless or for the people we actively don't care about. Right, exactly. Cool. A permanent location was urgently needed, however, and the corporation quickly purchased a new brick veneered building containing 20 large, sunny, and homelike rooms at 2529 4th Avenue South. Since only a few hundred dollars were available at the time for a down payment, the property was subject to liens and mortgages, and for a few years, there was a lot of financial stress. Quote, we have been warmed and fed from day to day, wrote the secretary in her report in 1888, and the long list of contributions shows that this was abundantly clear. Nothing was ever refused from 500 pounds of flour donated by Charles Pillsbury (gasps) to the grapes and one goose given by one Anna Reynolds. The hospital most substantial benefactor, however, was Levi Levi M. Stewart, a bachelor lawyer who habitually parried uh, appeals with a request for for time to discuss the matters with Mrs. Stewart, even though he was a bachelor. He would come and talk to um, Martha. 
basically. Oh, okay. These conferences resulted in many contributions, including an emergency loan, which saved the building at the time when payments could not be met. So basically, he was just a good friend of Martha. Okay. I was like, they're not alluding to anything weird here, nope. are they? Okay, good. Um, Some irritations and inve- inevitably arose for Martha as she strove to conquer the financial and ideological obstacles in the path of her hospital. However, she was briskly efficient, impatient of red tape, and pressed by other duties, but she was disconcerting, or she was good at picking out allies. She was a skilled beggar and reserved certain prospective donors for herself and did not relish anyone interfering, um, such as one meddlesome associate who rushed behind, behind her depth and permanently rebuffed a wealthy giver. What the fuck? When he refused her request, the irate woman taunted the man whose habits she knew too well by declaring that he, above all others, should support a maternity hospital. So I'm pretty sure she's like, oh, you sleep around. You're a fucking dog. Yeah. Screw you. Setbacks such as this could only be countered by Martha's unceasing labor to, you know, do the opposite, basically. Okay. More difficult to overcome, however, was the body of public opinion which resisted the hospital's humanitarian work. That's, you know, that everyone was like, oh, that can, you know, that that encourages women to sleep around because someone will help them now. So there's a clinic that's helping women in need and people aren't cool with it. How does that sound so familiar Mm. to me? This attitude led to at least one prominent Minneapolis woman to try dissuading a friend from membership on the board of directors. And in later later years, the hospital association with unwed mothers prevented many, quote, respectable women from taking advantage as paying patients of its truly outstanding medical facilities. Like, they were actually real good. Yeah. Dr. Ripley, or Martha, established an enviable record by insisting upon aseptic practices by excluding contagious diseases and by establishing the cottage system when the hospital moved in 1896 to its final location on a five-acre tract of land. So basically, she would, like, house everyone in their own individual cottages. Oh, okay. I was like, what is that? (laughs) During the 11 years that Martha was, like, in charge, she didn't lose a single child. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah. and the It s- was so easy for kids to die back then. It was the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. And the, the, stan- the standards that she set that were maintained throughout the life of the hospital um, led to the- them having a 1.35 per thousand maternal death rate. Compared to the state's 4.5. Holy shit. Yeah. This reminds me of Ruth Coker Burks, where it's like common sense care can save a lot of lives if you just stop being assholes about it. Right. Martha not only led the institution to distinction in the field of hospital and medical care, but also in recognizing what was that? I got to chill. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to interrupt. I'm just like, <laughs> I was very quiet about it, I though. Know, it was funny. <laughs> but also in recognizing the close relationship between social service and medical treatment. Maternity Hospital was the first in Minneapolis, the first hospital in Minneapolis to establish a separate social service department. Following the threefold purpose set forth in its Articles of Incorporation, it developed over the years three distinct divisions, each operating independently but in close cooperation with one another. The first was the hospital proper, serving both private and welfare patients. A residence for unmarried mothers and infants' home was eventually housed in separate buildings and was operated under the Social Service Department, which was also which also supervised the admission of welfare patients. For many infants... Deserted wives and wronged girls, this shelter was the only home they had known. Yeah. 
Martha's experience convinced her that young unmarried mothers needed rehabilitation. She once noted in a medical report that a death attributed by the attending physician to heart failure was in fact, quote, from a sense of shame and disgrace, end quote. Oh, Which that's so awful. preyed upon the patient's mind that life became a burden too heavy for endurance. So basically, she was like, no, our, you know, society's awful treatment of this woman basically killed her. It causes emotional trauma. Yeah. During their stay in the hospital, youthful transgressors were surrounded by wholesome influences and asked to attend religious services on Sundays and often Thursdays as well. For those who kept their babies, they were trained. Um, training was offered to care for the infants and also as an effort to maybe find employment to those who would want to support themselves. Wow. As the years passed, maternity hospital remained in the vanguard of the national trend toward more extensive and sophisticated social work. By the mid-1920s, guidance and counseling services were also offered, as well as opportunities for, vo for vocational training, and each case was followed up by for a number of months by a trained field worker. Joining the infants born in the hospital were foundlings often left, often left there and babies properly admitted for medical attention. The institution operated as an informal adoption agency long before the 1893 law permitted it to consent to adoption of abandoned and destitute children. The committee in charge sought good Christian temperance homes and appears to have placed as many as half the babies that came under its care. Wow. Uh, however, early procedures were disarmingly simple. In fact, there's a story that uh, one turn-of-the-century man obtained a blue-eyed, flaxen-haired boy along with the assurance that he could exchange him for a dark-eyed girl when supply permitted. What? Okay. What? This isn't fucking Target. But it's, you know, <laughs> that's just a story. Who knows? Commenting on the progress later in life of these adopted children, Martha observed that environment is the greater factor in people's lives than heredity. Nature Preach. versus nurture. Preach. At the close of 1911, 25 years after its founding, Maternity Hospital had cared for a total of 5,200 patients. Good grief. During that period, Martha was the heart and soul of the enterprise. In an anniversary address on November 1911, she reviewed its history and opened a drive to raise $50,000 for a new hospital building. Shortly after Christmas, she ignored her own advanced years and tired body to brave inclement weather and support humanitarian measures at the Capitol in St. Paul. The resulting respiratory infection brought on an illness which proved to be fatal. Damn it! Quote, is everything all right at the hospital? End quote. Were her last words before she died on April 18th, 1912. Two days later, she was... <laughs> two days later, though, she was cremated in Minneapolis. Yay! They, Minneapolis had accepted cremation about three years before she died. Yay! So that was a good thing, at least. She, at least she was like, oh, thank God, at least I get to be fucking cremated here. We actually should go visit this place, too. When in 1915, the cornerstone was laid for the new Martha G. Ripley Memorial Building at Maternity Hospital, her ashes were placed within it. Oh, Dr. Ripley's contribution to the development of Minnesota reached beyond maternity. So this is legacy now beyond maternity hospital. However, and however, and it was therefore fitting that a memorial plaque at the Capitol should permanently honor her. A, a surviving daughter and many devoted friends were the ones that s secured the approval to dedicate the plaque in its inscription. And in as in the minds of her contemporaries, the emphasis is on maternity hospital. The achievement is, um, a practical fruit of a life well spent. But we should not forget that she also was strong, uh, strong in her humanitarian reform and women's rights. 
She lived with the symbols of a quickening human spirit through the difficult transition from a rural to urban and industrial order and assuming active and continued responsibility for improving the condition of women and helping her fellow man to adjust to the new age. She committed herself to extending the area of human freedom and equal rights for all. I love her. I'm How have I never heard of her? I know, right? She is bonkers that's incredible and like she even kinda, living up in the cities i'm like um. and she really tackled all of this from a practical multi-point like strategy right and she and she wasn't doing it like um like it didn't seem like she was necessarily planning her moves she's like there's a need let's fucking fill that need i don't care what these girls situation right. is they need help it's why like, aren't we helping it's them? like it said that like she she was very vocal when she thought anything was wrong right um so maternity hospital did close in 1957 um the hospital structure was sold and the proceeds were used to create the ripley memorial foundation in 1993, the foundation focused on supporting programs to v- prevent teenage pregnancy. In 2007, the hospital building was converted into apartments and renamed Ripley Gardens, and a, uh, a redevelopment which was funded in part by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Dude, I would fucking live there. We should at least go and like visit. And see I will it. see sell if the cor- my house. see if the cornerstone is still there that had her ashes in it. That is amazing. So yeah, that. And that last, I mean, you say closed in 1957. Yeah. That's an incredibly long time. Yeah. Holy crap. Because what what year did I say it opened? I mean, it was 1887. I was going to say late 1800s. Wow. Yeah. It's like, that's Martha G. Ripley. I'm I'm sorry that was so long, everyone. No. Well, she did so much. Holy cow. Oh, I love her. I know. Man. And that's why I'm saying, like, I like was it I was gonna try and like cut some stuff out, but I'm like, I can't. Everything is amazing. Right. Every last bit of it is gold. Seriously, how is that? I was gonna cut out like just the Massachusetts part, but I'm like, this is really important to what later happens in Minnesota. That's her origin story. She's a badass. Holy shit. Man, Martha Ripley, believe it or not. (laughs) She's a fucking badass. Yeah, she is. Oh, I love her. Strong Minnesotan. Oh yeah, no, we adopted her. She's a she's a Minnesota now. She's, she's one, one of us. us. We're uh, one we're, of us. One of us. We're hugging her into our quilts and our yeah. snowsuits, and uh, we're gonna take her to Target. Yeah, I was I was gonna we, make we a stuff jo- it with news. We stuff it with her newspapers. I almost made a joke when she like went out in the cold to Capitol Hill. Like, oh, she should have stuffed her snowsuit with some newspapers. I'm glad I didn't because yeah. she immediately died. <laughs> <laughs> respiratory infections oh god damn that's amazing yeah unfortunately like i know you said yours is a downer so it's like mine kind of well, like eh. mine is like i'm excited about yours though mine's a bit of a mixed bag but i had so much fun learning Research. about i know this. i did i had so much fun learning about martha and I, this is the woman that i think i mentioned a few episodes that my coworker jana was ta- she's taking a minnesota history class because oh. she's from texas um and she was like, oh, I heard of this like really cool, like she told me she was taking this class and then I told her we had this podcast and she's like, you have to cover this woman. I also, and I'm so glad she told me that. I also love this idea that this person from Texas probably knows more about Minnesota history than we do. I know I have a list of like other women that women that I'm like, I'm gonna have to cover at some point because I like don't know who any of these women are. Right. And she also said it was really 
Like she had to like basically like her teacher had to give them resources. But what she did first was like, oh, go find them yourself. And then like as people started not being able to find good resources on Minnesota like women, then she was like, oh, here are here are resources. But she wanted them to see how hard it was. And I'm like, I love your teacher. That's fucking amazing. I kind of want to like be like, can we have your teacher on our podcast? Can our podcast be one of your resources? (laughs) (laughs) It counts. We're just we, gonna we cover, do our research. We're just going to do a month of Minnesota. Minnesota May. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, I am covering the Wilmer 8 so because you know I love a good number. Yeah, you like, know, you're, you're just bumping it up because, you know, you did the Edinburgh 7. Yep. Uh, like on our like second episode. second episode. And so now one year later and one year or one episode earlier, you're doing the Wilmer 8. Yeah. It's just it makes sense. I feel like I've done another number. You like four because you did the Mirabelle sisters. Oh, yeah, that the was Mirabelle three. sisters. Yeah. There's four of them, but there were three. You've covered several ones. like groups. groups. Yeah. I like a good, I like a good gaggle of gals. There you go. All I was right. Like, you almost said geese. Yeah. <laughs> That's also Minnesotan. Minnesotan. Duck, That's... duck, goose. <laughs> duck, duck, gray duck. That's Minnesotan. Minnesotan is duck, duck, gray duck. Yeah. Duck, duck, goose. Yeah. The rest of the country else, does it which wrong. Is wrong. It's very wrong. You want to know a fact about that? Apparently in Scandinavia, they do it both ways. So technically, we're both right. I kind of like imagining everyone else is wrong, though. I mean, yeah, we can say First that. First three headcanon, everyone else is wrong. Yeah. Because, I mean, Minnesota is like the state with the most Scandinavian roots. So we're yeah. allowed to tell them they're wrong. Yep. Okay. Imagine this. Small town Minnesota in the dead of winter. Snow. So, just go outside. Snow covers the ground, not the fluffy romantic snow, snow which has been frozen solid to the point where falling on it would feel like concrete and simultaneously cut you to ribbons. So outside. Yes. (laughs) The temperature is negative 70 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 57 degrees Celsius for our international listeners. I love you guys. With wind chill. So. So not like, quite I, outside. This, this like doesn't even take much imagination. She no. said with wind chill and I literally just like shivered. This was like last week. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was like Wednesday when it was yeah. snowing. This is unbearable. Even for hardy Minnesotan stuff in their snowsuits with newspaper hiking to Target. Uh, and we have snow and ice coursing through our veins. And yep. this is bad. Despite these horrific conditions, eight women stood outside the Citizens National Bank, bundled from head to toe, holding picket signs which read things like unfair labor practices, strike, and we protest slave labor. These women were Doris Beauchart, Irene Whalen, Sylvia Erickson Cole, Jane Hargath Gruthius, Karen Novotny, Shirley God, I didn't look up any of these pronunciations. Okay, you're doing fine. No, you're doing great. Shirley S-O-L-Y-N-T-I-E-S. Scandinavian. Yep. And Glenis Terwisha. And they were known as the Wilmer Eight. And they were striking against the Citizens National Bank in Wilmer, Minnesota. Fuck yeah. So Wilmer, Minnesota, I looked it up and I was going to include some like fun facts, but I couldn't find anything other than they have like a little water park that's only usable three months out of the year. But it's like almost directly west of Minneapolis. So it's north of us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I know where it is. Okay. So how did the Wilmer 8 come to be in these horrible, icy, snowy conditions? It's no secret 
that the 1970s were not the wokest of decades. Though women's lib was in full swing and the Equal Pay Act had been enacted in 1963, sexism and sex discrimination was still going strong. The Citizens National Bank was no exception. There were some stark differences between the male and female bank employees, and I just bulleted these, so pay inequality. The average starting salary for men at the bank was $700 a month, which is almost $3,000 a month. It's like $2,900 and change. While the starting salary for women was $300 a month, or $1,277 today. So there's a big gap there. It's like half. This is the starting pay. To put this in perspective, $700 a month is what one of the strikers had worked her way up to after 10 years. So it took her 10 years to get to the salary of what a man made day one. In addition to this pay inequality, the only female officer at the bank earned $4,000 less than the men she supervised. Jesus Christ. So she's the boss of these guys and and she's earning $4,000 less a year than they are. Uh, Second thing, unpaid overtime. So female employees were required to work overtime without pay. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. So there's pay inequality, there's sexism, there's bullshit, blah. Animosity had been stirring amongst the female bank employees for a while. Uh, Quote, we talked about it amongst ourselves all the time and it just kept growing and growing and we kept getting angrier and angrier, Doris Beauchart said. So she's one of the strikers. Things came to a head in April of 1977. The female employees were told to train a new male employee who's like literally just out of high school, like walked in with his cap and gown. He's like, give me a job, guys. And he was hired at a better wage to become their boss. So this guy with zero experience. And they're training him. And they're training him. To become their boss. Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because you need a guy to supervise women. They can't do this job on their own. They need a man they need, they need a man to tell them that they're doing a bad job. <laughs> when the women confronted the bank, bank president, Leo Persh, or as I like to call him, Leo Prick, over this and the ongoing discrimination, so they're like, Leo, what the fuck? He told them, quote, we're not all equal, you know, and that men needed more money because they paid for dates. Wow. I'm just letting that sink in for a moment. That is... Wow. Like, I imagine a man of all sitting the on this. excuses. I imagine this man sitting in this big oak desk, like, you know, doing the Burns finger pyramid. Right. And, like, it's almost comically villain. Like, men need you more. You know, we're not all equal, right? right? Like, is this news we to you? We need to pay for your dates. It's 1977. You don't have equal rights. And here's the thing can I just say, when was the last time a guy almost blew like two grand on a date even in a month right come on no they took him to like have malts down the street for like 25 cents a piece god damn but here's the thing the the quarter tank of gas cost them five cents to drive there and back i I mean that's that's too much that shit adds up too much yeah so not satisfied with their boss's flawless logic, that May, the women filed a gender discrimination complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC. And they also filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board. Good for them. In addition to these efforts, the women formed Minnesota's first bank union. Fuck you. Yeah. They're just like stacking up the well, efforts. Like Martha talked about that. 
domestics and other practices deserve to be able to create unions. Exactly. So that June, the EEOC unsurprisingly determined that there was reasonable cause to believe that there had been gender discrimination at the and the bank's board of directors agreed to negotiate with the women. So the EEOC is like, yeah, you guys are being kind of shady, it seems like. You and they're like, this. okay, well, we'll talk. We'll, it'll be a discussion. Yeah. However. Nothing came of it, as uh, <laughs> As Turwisha, one of the strikers, recalled, the negotiations were, quote, an absolute effort in futility. The bank president would sit re- reading the newspaper at the bargaining table. They had no intention of going anywhere. So this was just they were trying to placate the women and be like, no, no, no we're totally trying to figure this no, out. Just to get the, the EEOC off their back. Pass, you know? pass me the comic section. I want to see what uh, Calvin and Hobbes are up to. Right. That's way too recent. I don't think those those Go were around in the 70s. Cat. <laughs> uh so since nothing came of that, on December 16th, 1977, the eight women ventured out into the sub-zero weather and began picketing the bank. The women weren't super excited about picketing the bank and hoped the strike would end within a few weeks. Like, this was not something that happened in Wilmer, Minnesota. No, they're like, this is about to this was a, suck. Yeah, well, this was a very extreme move. So they're hoping like, man, this is a big deal. Like, they're, they're just going to... After a few weeks, we're all going to talk about it and this is going to go away. And many of them also felt that all this shit could have been avoided had the bank just paid their employees equally. Like, this didn't even need to happen. And they were all kind of like, oh, I'm sure even pick it now. Not that this should happen, but I'm sure even if the gap was less, it probably would have been less of an issue. Yeah. Unfortunately, as Taryn Novotny, one of the strikers, said, quote, they weren't going to let a bunch of female employees tell them what to do. So they stuck their heads even further up their asses and doubled down. So though the women hoped the strike would end quickly, it ended up dragging on for nearly two years. Yeah. I'm assuming the bank just replaced them. We'll get into it. Don't worry. This is, there's a lot here. Not 11 pages, but there's enough. (laughs) So despite the women never sending out a press release or soliciting any kind of publicity, the strike gained national attention and was seen as part of the larger women's live movement of the time. So like the first day of the strike, local newspapers showed up because this was so out of the ordinary. Like this didn't happen and this didn't happen here. And then it gained more and more national attention. Minnesota is a small town now. Yeah, I think it's got like, I looked it up. At the time of this, it was 14,000 people. And now it's like 100,000 or something like that. I Googled it. No, 19,628 as of 2017. That's its population. Wow. 19,000? Yeah. 628. Wow. Okay. I looked up a different number. <laughs> That's so nothing. Wilmer, city in Minnesota. Damn. It has a three-star average hotel rating at a cost of $126. Well, you can go to their water park there and hang out. I literally like went on their website. I was trying to find like fun stuff. And right. it's just it's just like a, a, any other like little Minnesota town. Okay, so the Wilmer 8 began receiving cards, letters, and donations in support of them from all over the world. An anonymous woman from New Zealand donated $5 every month to the strike fund. One letter read, quote, you can't stop. You understand you can't stop. Please understand you're doing this for all of us. No press. Wait, what year was this? This was 1977. 1977. So, yeah, the population was, some yeah, about 15,000. Yeah. 
Yeah, they didn't grow much since then. Nope. <laughs> There's a reason I've never fucking heard of Wilmer, Minnesota. And now I'm mad because this is an incredible event. Mm-hmm. So the women were featured in magazines and on TV shows, including the Today Show. Wow. Actress Lee Grant showed up at the picket line with a camera crew and made a documentary about the women, which you can find on YouTube. I did not have time to watch it before this research, but you bet your ass I'm going to watch it on YouTube later. Tur Wisha said of the documentary, quote, there's something that pulls me to it only because every time I see it, I still cry. And I realize that the tears are coming to my eyes at certain points. I look around and I see I'm not alone. I feel the welling of support again. It re-energizes and gives me some wonderful reminders. And I can't believe that I was part of that. Because these women were just trying to get paid better. They weren't trying to be a part of a larger movement. She also recalls it wasn't very long before it wasn't our strike anymore. Hmm. The National Organization of Women, or NOW, was also supportive, sending additional people to support them on the picket line. So they're like mobilizing the troops. But at first, the Wilmer 8 looked on the NOW activists with suspicion and hesitance. Right. Feminism was like a very dirty word at the time, and it conjured images of bra-burning radical hippie women who braided their pit hair in free blood in church, uh, I imagine. And it was looked down by... It was looked... There was also this idea that feminists looked down on women who stayed at home and had more traditional lives like women of small town Minnesota, which is still an issue today. It's Hmm. still a huge misconception about feminism because that's not what feminism is about. It's about giving women more choices to do what they want, whether it's staying at home, going to work, switching it up. It doesn't matter. Your Hmm. gender just shouldn't dictate what you're allowed to do. Right. Yeah, I fully agree. However, the Wilmer 8 came to realize that the activists were fighting to give women more choices rather than telling women how to live. Striker Terwisha nice. recalled, quote, it was like a light bulb came on in my head. I was like, wow, I get it. I understand. Hmm. So like they're all they're also starting to realize their role in all of this and that what they are doing is feminist and activism. And it's not just them fighting for themselves. They're part of a larger movement. Yeah. It's the practical aspect. It's the grassroots, baby. Martha would be proud. She would be. I mean, she was alive during this time, wasn't she? This was 1977. Oh, no, she was dead. I was going to say, her clinic closed long after she died, and that was 1950-something. 57. Oh, my God. She she knew. She She felt it. She she was with them in spirit. Yeah. Her descendants were there. Yes. <laughs> after after their time in Minneapolis, Ma- Dr. Martha's descendants moved to Wilmer, Minnesota, where they sensed that they would one day be a part of a larger movement. <laughs> in February, the United Automobile Wa- Workers held a support rally for the Wilmer 8, which was attended by more than 250 people. So oh. other like labor activists are supporting them and showing. Yeah. Them, like, yeah. Terwisha recalled... They were friends, they were supporters, and they did this without being asked. However, while the nation was falling in love with these eight spunky gals, the issue was highly controversial and seemed to split the town's 14,000 citizens. That was the number that was quoted in every single article I read, so I'm sticking with it. They had never seen anything like this and couldn't believe the strike was even happening. Like, this did not happen in in small-town Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. While some townspeople supported the women honking as they drove past the strikers, others were actively harmful. So, like, not even just, I don't like what they're doing, but I'm going to fuck them up. 
Local businesses blacklisted them for years. So even after the strike ended, they're like, you can't come here and you can't work here. Their children lost friends. One striker's marriage crumbled. The lawyer, John Mack, who was representing the women, was removed from his position at the GOP county chair. Wow. Yeah. To his credit, we have two badass dudes in this episode. To his credit, he stuck with the case. He said, quote, they were right, and I didn't conceive of it then, and I still don't conceive of it now, as being a partisan issue. It's not a political issue that you should get paid equally regardless of gender. I don't know why it has to be political. There were also five female employees who didn't strike and remained working at the bank. So this wasn't even all of the female employees at the bank. And here's the thing. I totally get that. To to, to strike is a big thing. That's a big deal. And that is fucking horrifying. Especially like let's say you're a single mom or like you're the one supporting your family by working at the bank. You're not going to strike. Right. You can't afford to. You know, there was an issue with... uh, I don't remember. It was like a couple years ago. One of the women's marches of women leaving work or taking the day off to go protest or march or whatever. And there was a lot of criticism of women who couldn't or wouldn't do that. But here's the thing. You're speaking from a place of privilege. Not everyone can afford to take a day off. What if you need to save your PTO for when your kid gets sick or for when you get sick? What if you don't have PTO? What if you're working your second job and you don't even get better? Like, there's so much there's, in there. Yeah, so here's the people thing. People shouldn't be criticized. If you can step up and do that, do it. But you're also doing it for the women who can't. Right. So shut up. <laughs> I'm angry. The bank began to suffer financial losses due to the townspeople ceasing their support. So that was another way some people showed their support. They stopped going to the fucking bank. Well, I'm sure some people, even if they didn't support the women, they were just like, I don't want to deal with this. Right. So they dropped from an annual growth rate of 12% to 6%. So cut in half. Yeah. Remarking on the citizens of Wilmer turning their backs on the bank, Doris Beauchart said, I think they were ashamed that they let us stand out there for two years. Like, even if they weren't, they were like, oh, my God, I can't fucking look at these women. I go to church with them. This is embarrassing. Like, I feel bad for them. Right. Though the bank could have ended the strike by simply agreeing to pay the women equally, they instead tried to leverage their power against the strikers. They put, quote, the financial squeeze, which I don't fully understand, on, near, uh, on a nearby gas station where the women would take bathroom breaks, forcing them to bar the women. So I think the bank had some kind of financial power over the yeah, gas they station. And, cause the, they must have had like a loan or something. Yeah, but basically they're using their influence to influence others to fuck these women over. As the strike dragged on, it was taking emotional toll on the women and strike funds were shrinking. In the summer of 1978, the Wilmer 8 dropped their discrimination lawsuit against the bank and settled for a small financial settlement, which was brokered by the EEOC. By September of that year, their strike funds were gone and the strikers dropped their demands entirely, offering to return to work without a contract. So this just went on for way too long and it was absolutely draining and they just financially and emotionally could not do this anymore. The bank had already filled the eight women's positions and told them that they could reapply as openings became available. One of the strikers, Doris Beauchart, was allowed to immediately return to the bank, but instead of returning to her position as head bookkeeper, she was demoted to teller. Beyond this, the other bank employees were abusive and constantly harassed her. 
Four of the other strikers were able to return to the bank eventually, but didn't stay for more than a few months. Gee, I wonder why. In the summer of 1979, the Honorable E. Dorian Gadson of the National Labor Relations Board found that the Citizens National Bank was guilty of unfair labor practices. However, because God damn it, they also ruled that the unfair practices somehow did not cause the strike and ruled that the strike was economic. So because of this, the Wilmer 8 were not entitled to back pay or getting their jobs back. So I had to do a little strike law research. So economic strikers are those who are trying to gain an economic concession from the employer, like higher wages, better hours, improved uh. working conditions. The strikers retain their status as employees, but employers are allowed to replace them, which I'm like, well, then why do they retain status as employees? doesn't seem to matter. Anyway... If the employer has hired a permanent replacement, the striker isn't entitled to their job back. So it's like, yeah, you guys can make all your noise out here. We're just going to move on. This is opposed to unfair labor practice strikers who strike against unfair labor practices. Duh. Uh, in this case, the employer cannot fire or permanently replace the strikers. And here's the thing. This was kind of both. Here's the thing. They literally use the phrase that the bank was guilty of unfair labor practices, but they're somehow not unfair labor practice strikers. Yeah. And the decreased pay was due to unfair labor practices. Yeah, that's bullshit. But God forbid the bank be held accountable for being a bunch of assholes. Like, I, I was talking to my boyfriend about this last night. I was like, I don't even... It's literally the same words. Yeah, like... I don't you understand. In one sentence, you say they're guilty of it. In the next sentence, you're like, yeah, but the women weren't striking because of it. And how were they not striking because of that? Like, that was literally yeah, the whole point. Like, oh, God. Ugh. Anyway... Despite this ruling that I literally cannot wrap my head around, the Wilmer 8 held the picket line into the fall. Eventually, the strike fizzled and ended just shy of two years. Jesus Christ. Legacy. Yeah. The legacy gets better, but like the strike. That's just bullshit. So much bullshit. On top of bullshit. On top of bullshit. Yeah. Just bullshit all the way down. Yeah. Legacy. So Doris Beauchart, uh, the one striker who was allowed to return to the bank, stuck it out. According to a 2009 article, she was still working at the bank part-time, though it's now Heritage Bank because wow. the bank... So after the strike... Change management and blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the thing. There was a little bit of a win because after the strike, the bank had obviously suffered and was losing money and blah, blah, blah. And so it changed hands a bunch of times. And the women did hope that the change in leadership would kind of changed their situation. It never did, but the bank is now Heritage Bank. I mean, it's, I would assume by now they pay their female employees the same. I would fucking hope so. Right. Aside from the small settlement, the Wilmer 8 never received any financial gain from the strike. St. Paul Pioneer Press reporter Mary Ann Grossman covered the strike from the beginning to the end and saw the bond that developed among the women. Quote, I think it became a sisterhood, she said. They weren't going to let each other down. So, like, this this went from just being, like, we want to get paid to, like, this deeper, more intense thing. Like, yeah. they were in it for each other and to support each other, which I think is sweet. So, despite having lost the battle, the Wilmer 8 contributed to... Contributed? 
to the large-scale fight for gender equality in the workplace. One of the strikers, Turin Novotny, recalled that her mother-in-law saw an increased respect for women at the bank where she worked. So there is like this immediate ripple, but then also a larger scale thing. Which I love. I like to imagine all those bank workers are like, dude, we cannot have these ladies fucking striking. Stop being a dick. (laughs) Right? Stop it. The Wilmer 8 still receive letters and phone calls from college students learning about the case. Still? Yeah. I suppose, no doubt they're still alive. Yeah. One woman in particular uh, receives them and they're honoring their sacrifices and struggles, which contribute to them being able to pursue an education and better workplace equality. I really want to like, write them a letter now. And be I like, do too. We featured you on our podcast. You're amazing and we love you. Right. And here's the thing. I, I could have gone so much deeper in this, but I needed to stop. <laughs> I just yeah, needed I didn't. to cut this off. That's what fuels my belief that we're not done winning yet, Terwisha recalled. People are still asking the questions. People still want to try and understand. Suzanne Nelson, a history teacher at Wilmer Junior High School. Go, Suzanne. Now, Grant, I got this from like a 2009 article. Who knows if she's still there? But Suzanne, you're awesome. She teaches her students about the Wilmer 8 to teach them how, quote, a small group of people can make a lot of difference. And she gets a bunch of students who will, like, write about them for class. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. They're they're so jazzed that, like, such a cool thing happened in their small town. Like, and I can't believe, like, I had never heard of this. And they gained national attention. This wasn't just, like, a local, you know, story. Right. This wasn't just something that, like, maybe, you know, oh, the Post Bulletin reported on it in the 70s and that everyone forgot about it. Like, there's a documentary. You can find it on YouTube. It's crazy. And it's a bummer that the strike didn't have the outcome that we all would have wanted. Right. But it also goes to show that acts of, you know, rebellion against oppression is always important and it's always impactful. And you never know really how it's going to be, but it's worth the fight. It is. That's amazing. They're, I love them. So these are our homegrown herstory heroes. I love Minnesota so much, even though it's a frozen hellscape. Yep. Me too. We're good peoples. Yeah. We try. So 2017 was 40 years after the strike. That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. And actually, one of the one of the women, she goes and speaks at universities and talks about it still. Wow. Yeah. And they uh, so she was the one that commented on the documentary because they'll show the documentary before she goes up and speaks. And she she like sits in the back and watches it. So she's seen it over a hundred times. And she's sitting there like tearing up every time. Like, oh, oh I my would. God, I can't believe that was me. I can't believe we did that. And then she goes up and is like. Welcome your new god, I am here. <laughs> if she doesn't open like oh that, god. she should. That would be that's so basically what's happening. So funny. Oh my god, if we ever do a live show, that's what I'm going to do. Welcome your new gods cuz we are here. It's so great to be a god. Hold <laughs> we'll, we'll on our Julio oh. and Miguel costume. Oh my god, it's amazing. Tulio and Miguel. Miguel and Tulio. Mighty and powerful gods. Love it. Kelly and Emily. Emily and Kelly. Mighty and powerful podcasters. Woo! I mean, we've been doing this for a year. Yeah, we're we're just old hat at this now. We're at least demigod tier. Demigod. Demigod Demigod tier. Demigod podcasters. Yeah. I'm getting that on a shirt. So, Kelly, 
What are you thankful for? Uh, do we really even have to say it? I mean... For our one year of podcasting, for you being an amazing co-host, for this really great wine that the guy at the liquor store recommended. Aww. I'm also thankful that I'm a really great co-host. <laughs> oh, my God. so grateful for your sense of humbleness. I I really no. am an inspiration to everyone. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad you're saying it because I'm way too humble to, yeah, to you say are. that. You're just, I'm just not a bragger. No, never. <clears throat> I'm I'm so grateful for all the women we've gotten to learn about this year. We've covered oh well over a hundred women because we've done episodes with more than two. I mean, we we've covered each, yeah, we've each covered groups this of women episode before. was nine fucking women right. which tops our eight fucking women from episode two. four or two yeah yeah so there's someone else i want to say i'm thankful for our fans like seriously guys we i mean we might still be doing this without you but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same it wouldn't be the same and we're glad that you're listening and we really hope that you're enjoying and we really hope that this year brings Many more of you and just many more, you know, things, whether it's guests on our podcasts or we guest on other ones. Like, we're really hope- looking forward to your growth. And, you know, we just love all of you. And we're so thankful that you're on this journey with us. Thank you guys so much. We're wine crying. <laughs> I think we need to do an extra cheers. To the herstory heroes. To the herstory heroes and to another year of herstory magic. Oh my god, oh my god that was close. <laughs> That's how I we end our year. Them. That's how we end our year. Just we break these beautiful fucking glasses. That I just made. God damn it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. You can like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. We have a blog at whiningaboutherstory.com. And please email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And then rate us five stars wherever you listen. It's super helpful. And then uh, we also have a Patreon if you want to show a little financial support. You know, yep. make up for that 70 cents to a dollar wage gap Heck I yeah. hear so much about. You know, if you support us um, often, you can maybe even get yourself a wine glass. And actually, I almost forgot, uh, during the month of March... You can get a two-for-one sticker deal if you $5 Patreon us. We'll give you our old limited time sticker and our brand new sticker, too. And maybe, you know, we'll be extra nice and probably give you two of each. But, you know, yeah. shh, don't tell everybody. While that. supplies last because we don't yeah, have on a the ton old, of the on the old, old stickers, ones. I think we only got like 25, so we might have less than that. Holy shit, I thought we had five. <laughs> <laughs> we have two, just don't tell anyone. Oh, my God. We might actually yeah. only have 10. I actually don't know. I Here's the thing. Them. Those are limited edition. We're not going to make any more of our old logo that nope. I so carefully created on Pixlr. Right. So, you know, if you get some, you, you're the OG. You are. Like, you're here from the beginning. That could be worth money someday. Yeah, you don't like know. Like, millions of dollars. Why risk it? Right. For $5. Get Just in there. And I mean, we'll, we'll write you a nice note, too. Oh, yeah. We're really big into the handwritten thank you notes. Yeah, my handwriting is terrible. Well, we write them together. Pre-warning. So I know. Like so it's like the legible. nice hand. Yeah. It's like the nice <laughs> handwriting. Then you're like, oh, that's Kelly. Your handwriting's actually very nice. I think you try really hard. Though, I do. When we do the handwritten I do. notes. Like you start sweating. There's a lot of concentration. Very slow hand like, writing. <laughs> and Emily's just like, Kelly, finish the fucking letter. 
Well, anyway, thank you again so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Her Street. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.